0: One thing that I always try to encourage any small business to do is to become extremely intimate with your numbers and your data,
1: right? Yeah. Set up yeah. proper, Agreed.
0: you know, if, if right now you don't have it, now is the time. And there are a lot of free tools to use on Google drive, um,
1: yeah.
0: you know, intimate with your numbers, right? Understand where most of your revenue comes from, which, which products it is. And.
1: Exactly
0: resist the urge to say that you think you know because you see what's moving off a shelf or what you might make the most of or where you think most of the money goes because chances are you're wrong or you may not be as accurate as you need to be for the types of decisions that you need to make now right are some business fundamentals that right now a deeper understanding of those things would help for example we speak to some small, smaller business owners, they can't speak powerfully to their margins.
1: And now right? we're margins.
0: Yeah, so whereas you might be looking to, um, on Elena's point, about maybe upselling to existing customers, sometimes upselling might have some form of discounting or making different packages and discounting them, right? Offering more than one product and saying, you know, 10% off. Do you know what that 10% really means? For your for your margins right and which are the right products to put out on which are the right products to offer on discount
2: um, you start to critically look at your expenses and what do i need to spend my money on you want to keep that criteria very simple what can i spend a dollar on that will help me make a dollar twenty what can i spend a dollar on that makes my product different what can i spend a dollar on that's going to make a difference to my business so it really is a a complete cycle and we're looking at there's going to be layoffs there are, people are going to look at do i really need all these employees if i'm going digital um it is going to happen so it means that you know even as an individual this is actually an opportunity because going digital has also made it easier for you to be able to probably start your own business. So you have to think about, if I have to use these skills I've learned over the years, if I have to invest in myself because I think my job might be at risk, where am I going to spend that money where I can make the biggest impact? You know, it's almost like the the old saying, you know, the low-hanging fruit. Look for some of that low-hanging fruit and focus your efforts there.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the second roundtable discussion series hosted by the Become Investable Limited team. Today we're discussing, are you ready for the recession? We have a nice panel ready for you today, and I hope you
0: have an informative session. All right, so with that, over to Kevin.
3: All right, thanks a lot, Senan. So in the last session, we spoke about using digital tools to kind of pivot what you're doing right now to try and get that add that revenue stream for yourself and today we want to go a little deeper you want to go into the into the backbones into the into the fundamentals of your business so this session is titled are you ready for recession right but when we think about recession i mean yes we we know from those of us who have taken an economics class we know it's two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth but it really stems from what what maria daniel will say is the mindset right and she says that Recession is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, Maria, I want to just kick it off with you right away. So, can you just kind of expound on that? So, when you say a recession is a self-fulfilling prophecy, like, what do you what do you mean exactly?
2: What I mean by that is in business, and, you know, I was saying, put away all the economics textbooks, put away all the academia. As much as I have many letters behind my name, I can't say that I am um, stuck to the textbook. And it all goes back to demand, right? Whether in boom or bust, it's all driven by demand, which is the consumer. So why I always say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy is if we think of the new economic times as doom and gloom, the natural thing for someone to do is to not want to spend, right? You wanna be like that hibernating animal Saving, saving, saving for when you don't have. But when you do that, you have now stopped demand. And demand is all circular. So you stop doing, you stop having demand, you stop spending. What would happen eventually is you have now lost a consumer. And if there's no demand, there's no supply. If there's no one to supply or anything to supply for, then you don't have jobs. And then it goes all the way around. So it's not about being irresponsible on spending during this time. It is being a little more, let me put it this way, data informed on what you spend on and how you spend. But if we all stopped spending, if we all said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to cook food every day. I'm not going to buy anything else. Jared is not going to like that. (laughs) Right? Then what would happen is we're going to close down the restaurant business, which then, you know, that employs thousands of people in Trinidad and Tobago. So this is what I mean by a self-fulfilling prophecy. So a lot of the discussions I've been having with various committees, it's about you need to keep your people employed. So if we don't keep people employed, if we don't keep jobs going, we're not going to have demand. And exactly what you're trying to prevent, you are going to cause. So that's what I mean by a self fulfilling prophecy. We can stop this, or we can make it worse. So it's really up to us on how we spend, continue spending, and have a level of confidence in ourselves, which will then put confidence in the country effectively.
3: Okay, so it's, it's, it's a pretty much like a a chicken and egg kind of situation. So we, we we imagine things are going to slow down, so we decide to slow down immediately, and then and then.
2: And then Not it true. must happen. Then it must happen. It must. There'll be nothing. I mean, even in, and it's worse yet, in small countries like ours. I mean, when you think of the little ones, like a Grenada or Angola, where you have 25,000 people in Angola, people stop spending. That's a big chunk of, of, of the population. It's just like with Trinidad. I keep saying, with only 1.4 million people, We're not large enough where we could say, okay, a piece of the economy will go away and it's not going to have a huge impact. So our multiplier effect, you know, in economics, we hear about the multiplier effect, is even more exacerbated because we are such a small economy.
3: Okay. And of course, Maria has spent the last 18 years um, advising businesses of of a variety of sizes in terms of, which is an acquisitions, a strategy, digital transformation, and whatnot. So Maria, Maria knows what she's talking about. Now, Jared, you have spent you've spent a couple you spent a couple of years in terms of microfinance lending, right? So you've you've given loans ranging from five hundred US to up to seventy five hundred US, so three thousand TT up to fifty thousand TT to small companies. You spent nine years working for a multinational in the oil and gas sector as one of the financial advisors or one of the, one of the financial analysts and for the past few years you've been running your own restaurant business right so when you when you think about this recession and, and when you think about the, what is happening right now, especially as your industry is being in it like how do, you, how do you how do you frame it in your mind and how would you advise others to frame it in their mind
0: So I think I'll just need to reiterate what um, what, what Maria has said. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if people believe or don't have confidence in the future or they feel they feel despondent, they, they will feel like they need to save. They will need to save for that rainy day or, you know, what might be a storm. So spending decreases. And once spending decreases, then it is going to have a domino effect. And definitely for us in the restaurant industry, which has been... A little peculiar to Trinidad and Tobago is where we had completely shut down our restaurants and um, retail food supply, right? And of course, this has had a domino effect, not just on jobs, but also on supply chain because there are a lot of uh, uh, companies and people and businesses um, that, that are connected to and before the food industry relies on so in terms of that you know totally cutting out that that level of um of, of expenditure i think um you know put us in a in a in a really tough position um having said that though given what is going on with with coronavirus you know i, I always like to say that you know when we when we put When we put investment and assets, it's not for the next two years or three years. It's, you know, you look more to a five or seven year period as a business, right? For that long term, reasonable returns on your investment, right? So the thing is, what happened has been painful, but our numbers are looking good. So I think businesses might need to look at the fact that, okay, it was extremely painful. It could be very painful, but it may not be as painful as if, you know, we had crazy numbers, and people were dying. And then people really would not be out and spending and doing anything for a very prolonged period of time, particularly in a in a country like um, like like Trinidad and Tobago. No, it,
3: it really is. You, you want to add to that, Maria?
2: No, I just yeah. I mean, you have to remember this whole coronavirus. Um, let's put all the conspiracy theories aside for a minute. But it's a lot of fear mongering right and fear mongering really causes people to not behave in a rational manner and we have to knock wood that we trinidad and tobago you know number one to reopen our doors and we still taking our time i know a lot of people are upset about that but at the end of the day if we were to just take the chances now and end back in a situation where we end up with more cases. I mean, Jared is right. People are just not going to go out. And that is a much bigger negative impact by exactly what you're saying, being patient for a few weeks, you know, pulling strain. And then um, at least people have any confidence that we can eat outside, we could go outside a bit because that would have been a disastrous effect.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that, Um, leaders have to do now, you know, sometimes we think that leaders, um, particularly in the political realm, uh, you know, they're not being truthful about certain things. But to some extent, um, you know, I think the point that we are trying to make is that there must be this positive outlook, right? Um, especially in, in bigger countries where what a leader or prime minister or president says has a great effect on the stock market. Which then has a knock-on effect on on businesses ac- across the across the spectrum, right? So you know you would hear to some extent. You know we're not going to call any names, but you will hear to some extent some presidents or prime ministers being very positive. We're going to get over this. There, there aren't many. We have a few cases, and yes, we see it piling on. But the the negative or fear mongering talk actually um, could have a very bad effect on the economy. Right? So
1: balanced, right?
0: Right. Yeah. In the background you have to be taking the action and doing all of the things to preserve the medium to long term. But you know, when you come out there as leaders, even leaders in, in companies and small businesses, I mean, you know, maybe some of my team might be watching this, but you have to be so positive. You have to be positive because you have to you have to move forward and roll forward and keep things going. Um, the fear mongering and, you know, the doom and gloom is, 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 as Maria said, is just very self-fulfilling. You know, it will impact your team, the morale of your team. Um, you know, it will even impact customers. So one of the things we tried to do over the, over the weeks that we were home was, um, we had a, a give thanks campaign where, you know, we were giving thanks for all of the things that we, um, we've achieved over the years. Um, in terms of our team, our customers, um, you know, the business itself and so on. Because, you know, you need that positivity. And you see some of the bigger brands out there doing the same thing, you know.
2: And I think the positivity, let, let's put some sure. some context around that as well. Sure. Um, because positive doesn't mean that we ignore the situation that we are in, Right. Mm-hmm. This is definitely a situation where people need to be cautious, um, where we have to change the way we do business, but change isn't a bad thing. It just means we have to transform our business models for the new conditions. It doesn't mean that we ignore these conditions or we ignore what is happening. It is all about adapting your business for a new way of doing business. That's what positivity is. It's about, I have accepted that life is not going to be the same. But in this acceptance, I am willing to transform what I did before to adapt to a new situation.
0: Yeah. yeah, And and, um, just to add to that too, um, I know we, we might get into this a bit more later. But within that, there is also a bit of panic. That might cause you to make rash business decisions that yeah. you believe you know might benefit your business in in the short term or even in medium term, but it may not be the best model or best fit fit for your business you know um as a survival instinct, some things may work, but some things some other things you know may not work um for example, we might see very bigger restaurant chains with extremely high overheads um Maybe getting into some uh, into some deals where you know you take a hit on a big hit on margins to get your product out there, but are you going to necessarily get the type of volume and so on that you need to still cover those overheads um, you know what is it doing to, to your brand to some extent you know what are customers perceiving uh, of your brand and so on because in everything we're trying to do, we're hoping that coronavirus is going to be contained somehow. You know, that's, that's a belief that we're going on, right? But what, what could it mean for the,
3: for the perception of your brand
0: moving forward,
3: you know? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot, a lot of people are saying that, you know, it's the, it's the end of the world as we know it, right? And, you know, there's going to be a new world. But, you know, and I'm, I, know I see Maria smiling because she's a, she agrees, right? Because with, with a new world because comes new opportunity. And Jared, you gave us a nice formula for opportunity, where opportunity is equal to problem plus solution, all right? So, I mean, I'd love, for Jared, for you to start to kind of map out, all right, how do we think about opportunity going forward? I mean, yes, we see, we see people making face masks and everything, but well, even when we look beyond that, how do you look at op- like opportunity going forward? In business
0: right um, yeah so the entrepreneur is always supposed to be on the lookout for what are the next problems that I can solve and make money from or in some cases what what problems can you almost create you know um, products that people didn't believe that they needed but you've now created and all, all of a sudden they can't live without it um, so for us now is about what in our products or services do consumers now need more than ever now all of us in the food industry always knew that consumers needed to be able to buy our products to some extent online or to have some kind of online presence um customers needed delivery for sure as as convenience because a lot of what we sell in the food food industry is convenience you know um I always say, you know, people could make could make a wrap at home. Um, I don't think it, it may not be as good as 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 our wraps, but you know, it could um, <laughs> it it could it could pass the test and you know it, it could fulfill could could fulfill something. Um so you know this this shift that we've seen in terms of solving the problem of getting our goods to our customers, I I think should have been happening all along. But of course now Um, with coronavirus, it has forced us to, um, to do that even sooner than expected, you know? So, one of the main things is what are the new problems that you have to solve for existing customers, right? You can look at it like that. And what does your business need to do, right? Um, the other, the other source of, of problem solving is going to come from what new problems are there for new customers, for new potential customers. Um, what is the, what does a coronavirus world look like and what products and services can either my existing business or, uh, an affiliated business, a business that is not too far removed from what I currently do or what my current, um, core business is, right? What, what products and services can I provide to, to live in a coronavirus world? Um, and, you know we've already seen uh, um, some companies starting starting to do that right um personally for me these days i am i am in between a place of concentrating on the core business ensuring that it can survive and withstand because there's considerable investments um and in assets there that, that need to get returns especially returns to shareholders which you know we will we will talk about that later on shareholders and investors you know, it could be an aunt and uncle who put money in your business. It could be a bank. It could, it could be somebody. And they would want to know that you are concentrating on the core the core business at this point in time to ensure that it survives. Because that's the business that they have confidence in, right? So I am, you know, I battle with that. And then I battle with, okay, here are some new opportunities out there I can go after. How much of a distraction can I take at this point in time? Um... And, you know, those things are going to need investment. You know, um, one thing I always look at is, you know, how much capital does a business need to be successful so that, you know, you don't shoot yourself in the foot um, before you even get, get yourself up and running? You know, so that's the other thing. Right now, um, when people are not that confident in the future, even if I have a business idea, where might I get financing for it? Where Where is the capital? going to be for that idea to solve that problem at this point in time. Um, so those are just a few of the things that, you know, we consider with that problem plus solution equals opportunity um, kind of equation.
2: When I, when I think of opportunity, right, in this situation, here's what I want to throw out to you guys. For these small business owners, the biggest barrier to entry and Jared would know this, before was location, 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 right? Yes. So for you to really set up a restaurant or for you to get your goods out there, you needed to be in the best location. Real estate right. in Trinidad and Tobago is expensive. Mm-hmm. And I saw someone put in the chat, your competitive advantage is taste. And that is so true. But before, even if you were okay but you had the right location, they will come. I can tell you, Maraval Road, where my office is, you had to be real bad not to make.
1: Right, yes.
2: Because location, location. But here you have this great opportunity as entrepreneurs now, where if your competitive advantage is taste, you will then have an advantage over the okay person because the playing field has now been leveled a bit more. So as a lot of companies, my my instinct is, and we're going to do it at, at EY, is people are going to continue remote working, right? People are going to have chefs, People can see it can work. So what it means is if you have a good product and you partner with somebody who knows how to do the supply logistics, who knows how to get the distribution out there, who has the transportation, you as the entrepreneur could focus on what you do best which is invent your product, improve your taste. So when I talk about opportunity in this environment, why I like it, it's because the play and feel has now kind of leveled a little bit more for the smaller businesses, because one, it gives you all a better opportunity to collaborate, share the backend, share the supply logistics, and you get your products out there. One platform with everybody on it also saves that. So when I saw that in the chat, um, your competitive advantage is taste. I want people to hold on to that. What is my competitive advantage? You know, going on what Jared is saying, what is the problem am I trying to solve? And how do I solve it differently from everybody else out there in the marketplace? You know, online really gives you the opportunity to showcase your products much easier than they were before because you put it on your right platform and people who would have never seen your product are now seeing it. But here's my warning sign. The fundamentals still must exist. You must be able to supply. You must be able to have your quality standards, you know, even more so because everything is real time now, right? So somebody tastes your product. They don't like it. It's not even going to take two seconds before it's out there. Or they find a piece of something in the food. That's your bottom dollar. It's going to be out there. And the reverse side, it tastes really good. All of a sudden, everybody rushing for it. So you have to have your back office systems, your supply chain, and, and that's critical now because you also have to understand in COVID, how have your suppliers been affected? You really need to understand that. And do you nu- now need to have three suppliers for the same product? Because you don't know if your supply now is going to be consistent.
3: So I was doing some, um, I was doing some research on Zoom, as in, you know, Zoom, the company. Because right now, Zoom, Zoom is winning. And and looked at their formula for scale. And it's really three things. And you, you guys mentioned two of it already. So you solve a big problem that affects many people. And you focus on the customer, right? And as we talk about focus on the customer, I see we have a question from Elena and I, and i know jared has, jared is ready right to answer that immediately do you think that smes should focus more on attracting new or upselling existing customer base both during and short term post covid 19 right um so
0: yeah this is something that um you know we've been thinking about a lot um and there's a bit of a cost aspect where Um, you know, acquiring, um, new customers or attracting new customers is expensive than, you know, reaching out to and, um, selling to existing ones. Right. So, so that's one thing. Can your marketing budget, um, can your distribution channels and so on, can they, at this point in time when things are very challenging, can they, can they reach new customers within, within your budgets or your constraints? Right. Um, The other thing too is that with existing customers, I think there's a bit of emotion there once you've built a strong brand. Um, and it's a bit of emotion that you can appeal to. Now, that, that emotion isn't like, oh my gosh, guys, you know, we're not doing well. Can you please buy from us? But it has to do more with, you know, the brand loyalty. You know, at this time where, when, you know, um, things are challenging, um, you know, your existing customers are probably going to be be your best bet for revenue more than any other time. Right. Um, and then it's about how do you reach out to them? Um, so that comes back to, to being online, to having an online presence or data on your customers, data on your customer base. You know, um, how, how, how can you contact um, existing customers? Uh, how can you attract them? to return to the business if they haven't been there for a while or you know if you want to increase their their frequency or even if you want to reward them you know for for um for their loyalty over the years you know how do you reach back out to them and let them know that that you are going to be doing that because you know growth growth would normally come from new customers right are you gonna get new customers now probably not with your existing business or or you can as you know as maria pointed out now um, you know some new customers could be sitting down um in their home offices right um i don 't want to use the, the food example too much because you know um there there are other examples we can use, but you know maybe if you manufacture um some sort of good or something, you know new customers can be sitting down sitting down at home and and they need your product um so you know there 's just that that balance and it 's really about your constraints. And it's about, as Maria said, the fundamentals. Um, you know, you, if you if you reach out to existing customers and you make mistakes, which which we're seeing happening because supply chains are being challenged, um, you know, the businesses are being challenged. So, you know, there might be, sometimes there, could, you know, there can be an increase in mistakes. Existing customers might be a little more forgiving than brand new ones. So again, it's about if you're back, if your back office, if your supply training distribution and so on can handle reaching out to new customers and increasing thereby increasing your
3: your your, your demand. So it's good that we that we spoke about the restaurant space, all right? But I want to talk about another industry that's been heavily affected by this, and this being the events industry. Now Maria, um, a few years ago you um in eY, EY gave an award to an event promoter. I think that was the Emerging Entrepreneur of the Year, something like that. So, I mean, yesterday when we were talking, you had some very interesting ideas for how event promotion companies or event production companies can solve that core customer problem of the need to be entertained, right?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, the events is really the tricky one, right? Because we were talking about that. I mean, they made their money by more people are together, now more people together, Is negative so if you could think of one industry that you know airlines eventually must open up they must because people do have to get from one place to the next but when you think about events they're really really effective so but what is the problem that you try to solve with an event right it's people want to get together and have a good time do you need a hundred people to do that probably not uh, my teenagers might say differently, but um, my view is people want to be able to have a good time and share it with friends. So events now to me are going to be smaller. Go back to the days when we used to go to house parties. Jared, you might be old enough. The rest of them on this are not too sure. Um, yeah, There's only a
3: little bit older than me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right? So in my day nightclubs didn't exist yes that did you know i think jb's was the only one right nightclubs did not exist really in trinidad and tobago it was house parties and it may have been 50 people sometimes 200 people it used to vary so i think event planners and we were talking about this and again this is where plain playing field levels a little bit because a smaller entrepreneur now can quicker do a little event planning for, you know, 20 people, you don't need a whole lot of tables and chairs, but just enough to be able to plan an event in the evening. It's also an alternative to uh, to the chefs. So, again, you have rent a chef for the night. You have a waitress for the night. What I want from entertainment or event is to be entertained. And I don't mind doing that in my backyard once I want to do all the work to get it done. I'll pay for it. So I think what has to happen is event planners really need to relook their business model and see how they can do it in a smaller scale and get their volumes differently Um, because I don't see how else they will survive. They definitely have to drastically relook what their business model looks like and what entertainment looks like now and how you can do that virtually. I mean, we've done enough zoom lines in my, in my office, in fact, we've never met each other across the region and have a line, and we were able to do it now via Zoom.
0: It really comes back to what is the core problem that, um, that you were trying to achieve as your business, right? And how can you do that now virtually? Um, and definitely, you know, we're not going to solve it here, and it's going to take um almost it sometimes almost takes some ridiculous thinking and then probably making it a little yeah. bit more practical so let's look at, at a ridiculous example right some of us love parties because we love to go out and and dance and, and meet new people and so on right um so of course you know you can't have a social distancing fit you know it's not gonna be like you know you look at somebody you want to dance with from six feet away and you all dance together and, and it's the same it's the same thing, right? So that's the level of the ridiculous that you that you have to think about. But then how do you scale that back to something that is um is a little more practical, right? And for me, I remember um there was this game that was so popular, I think it was Sims. So you live yeah. in a simulated world and you know, you have friends and people were forming these friendships and you know, building these characters online virtually and so on and spending hours, you know, living in these types of virtual worlds. And, you know, it was very successful at a point in time. Um, So, you know, for us, it might be, well, you know, maybe how how do you reimagine entertainment in that way? Also, we're thinking that hopefully, you know, the world is not always going to be like this. So maybe you come up with something that for the next two years could build a customer base or you could have people meeting each other who can't wait to meet each other, you know, after a year or two or something like that, you know. But again, it comes back to what is the core problem that, you know, that your business, that parties and gatherings and entertainment was trying to solve, which is probably the need for people to interact with each other and learn from each other, learn new things, experience new things with each other, you know.
3: Nikisha made a point that it's also beneficial for small businesses to have financial management sessions, especially managing cash flow, which is critical. And I think that once, that, that once makes me want to take this conversation to, to our next point, right? So, existing businesses, and we talk about restructuring, cash flow management, expense management, and everything. So, Maria, I'd, like I'd like for you to start us off in this. Sure.
1: With this.
2: Sure. And I mean, when, I mean, most of these sessions now on COVID-19 is cash flow management and liquidity, right? Because here you have a situation and anybody running a business knows again, almost everything in business is a cycle, right? So once your revenues continue to flow, um, you know, it's really cash from one period paying for expenses in another. Effectively, that's what cash flow is all about and managing that. And here you have a dead stock. So all of a sudden, that cash flow that was coming in to pay for something that you spent before or you incurred before is no longer there. So now you have to also look at, is the cash that's going to be coming in enough to sustain me? And we do this, I mean, when we do this on a professional basis, we always look at 13 weeks, a rolling cash flow of 13 weeks. Use your data to to see, okay, really, where's this cash flow going to come from? And then we go back to a very simple thing called zero-based spending. What is zero-based spending? Zero-based spending means that, okay, if I usually spend $10 on items, I'm not just going to spend that $10 again. I'm going to look at critically, what do I need to spend money on? And I'll give you an example, very um, basic example. With technology, we don't write anymore as much. People hardly use pens, but I can bet you a million dollars that most companies or public services are still ordering the same amount of pens they were ordering two years ago because it was in the budget and they just drag it along. So it's simple things like that. When you start to critically look at your expenses and what do I need to spend my money on, you want to keep that criteria very simple. What can I spend a dollar on that will help me make a dollar twenty? What can I spend a dollar on that makes my product different? What can I spend a dollar on that's going to make a difference to my business? And the things that, and then of course you have some that you just have to do. So if you kind of categorize your expenses and say, okay, what dollar is really going to make the bigger impact to my business right now? And I. Somebody just put a topic of, of of reskilling, And part of that expenditure also has to look at, if the source of my revenue needs to change, what do I need to spend money on now and in this period in terms of learning something new in order to generate that revenue? So it really is a, a complete cycle. And we're looking at there's going to be layoffs, they, um, people are going to look at, do I really need all these employees if I'm going digital? Um, it is going to happen. So it means that, you know, even as an individual, this is actually an opportunity because going digital has also made it easier for you to be able to probably start your own business. So you have to think about, if I have to use these skills I've learned over the years, if I have to invest in myself because I think my job might be at risk, where am I going to spend that money where I can make the biggest impact? You know, it's almost like the the old saying, you know, the low-hanging fruit. Look for some of that low-hanging fruit and focus your efforts there.
0: I just wanted to add to um, what Maria said there. Um, and I think fundamentally um, all that Maria said was great, um, but I think one of the challenges that small businesses have is that they may not understand their numbers to that, to that extent. Right. So um, one thing that, you know, I always try to encourage any small business to do is to become extremely intimate with your numbers and your data. Right. Set up, proper, Mm -hmm. You know, if, if right now you don't have it, now is the time. And there are a lot of free um, tools to use on Google drive. Um, yeah. you know um, get intimate with your numbers right? understand where most of your revenue comes from which, which products it is and exactly. resist the urge to say that you think you know because you see what's moving off a shelf or what you might make the most of or where you think most of the money goes because chances are you're wrong or you may not be as accurate as you need to be for the types of decisions that you need to make now Right. Um, so there's also a bit about, um, I know, you know, before um, we might have spoken about throwing away some textbooks and so on. Right. But there are some business fundamentals that right now, um, I think a deeper understanding of those things would help. For example, um, when you speak to some small, smaller business owners, they can't speak powerfully to their margins
1: and how about that
0: margins yeah so whereas you might be looking to um on elena's point about maybe upselling to existing customers sometimes upselling might have some form of discounting or making different packages and discounting them right offering more than one product and saying you know 10 percent off do you know what that 10 percent really means for your for your margins right and which are the right products to put out on which are the right products to offer on discount um and then back to zero, the 0 base spending, you know, um, as small businesses, can we really say that I know, I have lab- line by line, I know the expenses that I've had for the past year or for the past two years or the expenses sure.
3: I had when the economy wasn't so great some time ago. Yeah, I'd love you to, to um, sort of zoom in, especially like if you could give an example, maybe your own example of some expenses that could be cut now and some, you know, some rational investments that could be made right now. So ra- rational allocations of your existing, of your existing funds. You know, so if you could just kind of walk through that from a, right. from a practical standpoint.
0: Right, good. I think one of the ones I like the most because um, there's a bit of devil advocacy to it is uh, marketing right um, so a lot of companies when things start to go haywire they start to look at marketing right so marketing is one of those items that you know you can cut yes but do not cut your marketing in such a way that it is going to impact your revenue right so this is where the balance of marketing to existing versus attracting new customers so i can tell you now personally any attraction for new customers right now has been reduced. And we've shifted, shifted an existing budget or a reduced budget towards reaching back out to existing customers, right? Now, right now, that might be a more efficient use of your marketing budget. And as Maria said, some things like stationery and stuff, there are some things that, you know, you may have been doing before that for a time you might say, you know what, for the next six months, we're not going to, we're not going to do this right, um and it might be some tough decisions, some of it might be creature comforts um you know, right now, I am in a place where some of the digital online services that I um subscribe to, you know, I might say, you know what I'm gonna do without it for 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 two to three months because I think that you know this this money can go towards um paying employees and and that kind of thing, but again, that has to come with very. Good understanding of where every single, um, cent of your expenses go, right? Yeah. And, you know, there are some hidden ones like bank charges and stuff. Can you have a conversation with the bank? I was very happy to see my bank reverse, uh, my point of sale rental fees for, um, for two months, right? Um, that's $1,200 there for me. That could help pay an employee, right? Um, so, once you sit down and you start to understand these things, then you can act on them. So even if they did not cut the point of sale rental fee, I was actually going to call the bank and say, guys, I would know that you all realize that we have been using our point of sale machine. So, you know, is there anything you can do here for us? You know?
2: Yeah. And when we talk about data, and at the beginning we spoke about data-informed decisions. Hmm? It goes even further than that in terms of measuring. And everybody feels that they need a software to do this, to track their own expenses, you don't. Yeah. One very successful business that I helped sell to a multinational had no general ledger. Now, I'm not advising you to do this at all. At <laughs> right. all.
0: Right? Disclaimer, at disclaimer. disclaimer.
2: Right, big disclaimer. I'm not advising yeah. this at all. But I'll tell you what he did know. He knew exactly for each of his products that he manufactured, how much sense it costs of each input. Every time he shipped a container out, he knew exactly what his margin was on that container. And he had no Excel spreadsheet. He had no, he had a manual general ledger, which I didn't see since I was a junior, e away, but he knew his numbers. So my point being is you don't need a whole big system to be able to know your numbers. But if you do have something that you can use, I'll tell you what's the other advantage of knowing your numbers. It's not just about cutting, you know. It's also about how can I spend differently? How can I buy differently? Where can I source alternatives now that will give me the same output at a cheaper price? Can I partner with other people and we bulk buy now so we get bigger discounts? So the only way you would know that, and with Jared's example there, if you don't have the data, how can you even work out what options to give people? So, you need, you know, you see in retail stores in the U.S. and get excited, oh, buy one for $45 and get four free. And you think thinking to yourself, for free, because that's all you're focusing on. But if you took the five and divided it into 45, you're paying the same amount as somebody who's selling one for $5. So you have to really... Have the numbers and it, it could be on a piece of paper if you're, if you're frightened about using it. But I would say take this time to really educate yourself because knowing your numbers and Jared, when I do personal investments, I just like you, I do personal investments in entrepreneurs. The one thing I look for is that person who knows their numbers. Yeah. Because I don't have the time to spend with you. So if you know your numbers and you know what you're doing yourself, then I feel much more confident investing
3: in you. Yeah, yeah, and that makes the I know, that makes the world of sense, uh, you know. And I like that you make that point, Maria, about the gentleman who has his business, who understood his numbers, but it wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessarily digitized, right? Because especially right now, people are rushing to digitize their business, to automate processes and everything. But just like we we spoke about before, is that if your business model in itself is already flawed automating it and digitizing it is just going to it's just going to magnify
1: exactly it,
3: right and i know that um Young, you guys are very big on digital transformation and on the underlying that underpinning that sorry is digital strategies so Look, can you just um, walk us through that process of you know digital transformation for for a company
2: yeah and i think your your best point there your biggest point there is automation is not digital transformation Right. So let me just spend one second just looking at the difference. So if before I used to write something on a piece of paper and then I decided to type it up in Word, that is just automating the process. You have not transformed the process. So when we talk about digital transformation, it's not just about taking what you already do and putting it on a computer or adding technology to it. It goes back even further from a digital strategy. It's a business strategy must come first. So you have to understand, what am I trying to achieve? What is the customer segments? What are these customers looking for? And digital is just an enabler to get that experience done, to make it easier, for the convenience, for you to get the data to then continue to improve your product as well, and where to focus your efforts. So when we talk about digital transformation, I want people to be clear. Digital transformation is not just about automating. It is really about using technology to enable your strategy. So the first thing you need to understand is what is my strategy? And when I do strategy work, I always tell people, when you have a good strategy, everybody knows what that strategy is. And digital just needs to help you accomplish that So if your strategy is to be a low-cost provider and deliver value to the customer, then you're going to put things in place that that's what you're doing. But your your target market is not for the high-end person looking for the convenience. And the mistake we make sometimes is we want to be high-end, but we could only deliver low-end. And low-end is not bad. Everybody thinks, That being on high end is great, but it's not. You have mass production that has a need that you could probably make much more money from in a small environment than ours than going high end. So digital transformation is just about enabling you to get your strategy executed in the most efficient way. So running to be digital without having your proper business strategy and your proper business model is not going to help you to succeed. If you get that right, then when you put a digital onto it, it just makes it so much better. But you have to get that first part of it absolutely correct.
3: So Jared as a I mean as a restauranteer, you know, how how have you been handling this, you know, transference to, to digital?
0: So what I would say is that we have always um, strived to, to be digital, right? Um, and that sometimes means, I, I would like to, I, I like to say that to some extent, we are guinea pigs um, for certain things in, in the industry, right? Um, there's a, a technology company that we work with and when they want to test any new product, not just for restaurants, but for retailers, They would always give us a call and say we want to run this bike we want to run this in a shop we want to see how how it goes and then you know my team would be like oh my god another one of these things right it's about wanting to be as efficient as possible and it's about understanding that sometimes the digital transformation or adoption of digital solutions might mean an initially high capital outlay but you always have to think about what is this going to do for us in the next two to three years? How many man hours can this um, save us every month? You know, um, there are things that we've done that have uh, helped people to be able to spend more time in the kitchen or go home earlier. You know, um, a, a good inventory system, um, you know, any in, in restaurant, for example, um, we do very detailed stock taking. Because by the third day of the following month, I like to know exactly how much money we've made. And a big part of that is what were your cost of goods sold, right, for the previous month. And that means you need to have the opening stock, how much you purchased, and what stock or cash you have sitting on the shelves. So um, I can tell you two things there um, that helped us. One we were able to know how much cash we had sitting on our shelves at about the 6th of April when the Prime Minister said, that's it, you know, restaurants are closed. I wanted to know, okay, I know how much cash I owe, I know how much cash I have in the bank, but how much do I actually have sitting on, on, on the shelves, right? And all we had to do, the separate managers, we logged in from home and we were able to see in our inventory system exactly how much money, how much cash we had sitting on the shelves, right? And because of that, you know, you save people having to go in and do another count, right? Which could take a few hours um, and risking people being out there and so on, right? And I mean, that system costs us about, um, on subscription, about 100 US uh, a month, right? And it saves so much time for for the managers where they're able to focus to focus on 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 other things um another thing that we have is our reward system and we have a whole database of 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 information there what are the most um, popular things that um that people are claiming rewards on meaning you know when they get these rewards what do they what do they go and get with it um you know um it's also a database of, of of customers who have who have the most points who aren't redeeming points, who had points up till January this year and you haven't seen them again. You know, it's one thing to be able to see a customer every day and know that they're there, but then it's the next thing to check a system and say, instead of saying, when last you saw Maria? You could say, wait, look, Maria last swiped her reward system in January. Did Maria lose the card or has Maria not come back? Why is Maria not coming back? You call out to Maria, oh, you know, I had a wrap and instead of five shrimp, I got four and I said, forget about y'all for a while and then you're able to re-engage Maria you know so um just for my business um these are some Mm -hmm. of the things that you know that we do but I would say overall one of the biggest benefits of digital again is the ability to capture data and use it in in all in all forms you know
2: And, and I think just one point I want to make there that I want to stress on and Jared's example is perfect. And Natalie just put in something about an investment decision when the outlook is negative. It's what you're investing in and how you use it. And you see, when Jared said he's using the data he's getting, a lot of people have data, spend money on technology, and then don't use it. And then say yeah. the technology not working, but it's your brain yeah. that's working. Ooh. So when you understand, Inventory management, this goes at all industries, except probably services. I mean, where you use people, but people are also your inventory. But really understanding how your working capital, we were talking about cash flow, is tied up in inventory, is real important. So overstocking is a big issue. Even tracking, for example, um, every time we make, a product how many of it is being returned or how many does not have repeats you know if somebody buys it once and they're not buying it again and the, the more times you track that you know okay we don't need to buy that product we need to tweak that product but it all goes back to what is the point of having a reward system if two things don't happen one you use it to get more sales because that's your purpose remember in investment decisions the only reason we are investing is to make more money from it. It is not a charity we run in here. we go in into business to make money. You can then do the charity afterwards. Yeah. But the whole point of investing is, I'm investing because I want to make money from that investment. And I think way too often, especially with digital, people run out and make investments. Don't um, install it properly. And then don't use the data that's coming out of it
3: to make their businesses more profitable. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I listened to the advantages of, um, of going digital and using digital and everything, especially with the with the examples that Jared gave. But when I think about the the infrastructure, right, so we, especially us in the Caribbean, we have very high mobile penetration, right? So we have mobile penetration is something north of 150%, right? So on yeah, average, there. on average, you have more than one phone, one-on-one mobile phone, Per person right um we we look at our our telecom systems i mean they're not they're not anywhere they're not as advanced as maybe china and maybe some parts of the u.s or the or the uk and other developed markets but however when we when we look at our payment systems you know where, where we actually close to you, where we actually you know getting money into our business accounts you know what i mean we have we have some players locally and regionally that are uh, that's a uh, Advancing things, but it's still somewhat in its nascent or developing stage, right? So, that's just a few challenges to me of going digital. I don't know what else you guys see.
2: Yeah, but that again, that again is a circular.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. One of the reasons, well, we have a number of challenges. So, I sit on the, the FinTech Association of Trinidad and Tobago, I sit on their committees, right? So, what we're trying to do is really get these payment solutions and FinTech solutions. And one of the first things have been, of course, adoption. So what do I mean by that? It's okay to have great technology, you know, but if nobody's using it, remember what I said, you're not gonna spend the money unless you're gonna get it back. So we actually had this discussion on another um, little forum I did. And it's really about people who are not embracing the digital, even as users. And let's say, for example, any of those payment solutions. So when you go to China, when I went to China, they don't even accept credit cards.
3: Nope. Only on WeChat.
2: Everybody has to transfer money via your, your, your mobile phone, right? And for this to work, for payment solutions to work, everybody has to adopt it. So if I want to spend, send money to Jared from my phone, Jared has to have e-wallets as well, and I send it from my wallet to yours. And then we need the regulator to allow it. So there have been a number of things that are actually holding back Trinidad and Tobago. But infrastructure, believe it or not, is the least of our worries. We actually did a study comparing Trinidad's infrastructure to Estonia, which is one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world. And we were not so far off. So a part of the issue is adoption. And a part of the issue was the regulator. But thank COVID-19 for this. All of that is going to be fast-tracked now from the government's perspective, from the regulator perspective, and people know that they have to use it. So that's one barrier to entry, Kevin, that you're going to see is going to be greatly reduced, which then makes it much easier for the small businesses to go digital and have online payment systems. It's not ready yet, but it is coming. It is going to come.
0: I think um to Maria's point too, there's a big confidence factor you know when people mm-hmm. with local with local websites, you know I mean um we get a fair um i would say a concerning number of uh, um questions about if it's safe to pay for stuff online with with us, you know um and you know we have to say, yes, of course it's safe, you know it's a visa it's um you know it's triple accredited certification and all these things you know um so there's that there's that confidence factor too um and i think even before that i would say our um fairly low um credit card penetration um has also been been an issue um but thank god you know we are moving towards the visa debit cards now where you know they act as they act as credit cards so you know, um people could um people could
3: could benefit from that. It's funny that that we that we just speak speak about how good our telecom systems are. And I think I just cut got, got cut the forty six right. time during right. the, during this session.
0: <laughs> right. But um I haven't used you know technology and I mean internet is is, is a little tricky and
1: have the 2 all the
2: is in my house. I have right. two. I used right. to have three because wow. I would from home and now with the children having to do school i had to put in two so that we feel yeah
3: yeah yeah, yeah
1: yeah i saw
2: somebody raise a, a point here about the older population not ready yet um but I think,
3: radio, 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 well
2: radio. i don't know what it, depending on your age justin i'm not too sure what older means right so i could tell you i represent the 50s and um I have never been in a bank I have done everything digital my whole life I have just convinced my mother that the iPad I bought her so long ago I'm going to show her how to pay her bills online because they do have a real fear because of their age and covid now of 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 going out so um it it's also that time to get them I mean I was amazed when she told me you know your aunt still have a past book and I was like Oh what I didn't even think people still had physical books to go to the bank but right, they yeah. do right yeah, yeah. do you think that part of that just reading some of the questions here yes I think that part of the reasons people have not gone digital or online is because now everything will be tracked let's yeah. be honest here yes.
0: I think one of the um really great questions I saw here which we could probably touch on was from Natalie. Um, how do I make an investment decision in a recession when the outlook for economies are negative and I don't know how long it will last? Right? Um, that's a, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, you go back to, you have to go back to the fundamentals of, um, of investment. Right? Um, and I think that to some extent, some of the fundamentals, um, have been skewed within I would say probably the last decade, um, especially around some of the disruptors and people making heavy investments in businesses that may not see immediate cash flow or where you may have to wait a long time for cash flow um, and you know some of these some of these trends that you know that we've been seeing um, but the fundamentals of investments you know just to put quite simply a uh, If you have a dollar and you put in that dollar, you would like in the future to get a dollar and 10 cents, a dollar and 20 cents, right? So I guess, Natalie, your investment decision has to be grounded in that. If I am making an investment decision or, and Kevin spoke about this earlier, where now you know the entrepreneur might be a little more um, hesitant to put their capital in, or if I go to somebody else asking for a dollar, right? how am i going to convince this person that with within a recession or with a negative economic outlook that they can get a dollar and 20 cents and i think one of the first things you have to ground people in is the fact that you're not going to get a dollar and 20 cents you might get a dollar and 10 cents right that's that's one of the first things we have to be um i think we have to be a bit more um honest about what returns could look like and set expectations there Um, I think too, that we also have to be investing in some problem that really needs to be solved within this, um, you know, within this environment. So, um, are you going to come to me with an investment in a new restaurant with a physical location? No, right. Are you going to come to me and say, you know what, um, this is all going to be, um, delivery based. Okay, now this sounds good. And you know you give the rationale. More people are going to be home now and um you know people are not going to go out as much and we can actually have less overheads than an actual restaurant and make even more money. And um you know things along those lines where you find you think about what for an investor is going to be attractive about this business. Especially when your all investment dollars now are going to be competing for investment, right um, more than ever, more than ever now um, so what are the what are the trends what are the ideas out there? Where might an investor's dollar go versus mine, and what makes my investment better or more attractive than other things that we're seeing out there, and that's where you know um it's probably going to call now for a little bit more research right um you know your your ideas probably going to have to be backed by a lot more research than you know let's probably say earlier this year you know um especially in terms of trends going forward you know what are some of the what are some of the key the key behavioral consumer type trends moving forward and how is your problem fitting into that
1: Mm-hmm.
3: so as we get ready to go into our final topic before we touch the q and um i think this final topic kind of ties everything back ties everything together right um we so throughout the discussion we were talking about you know focus on your fundamentals know your business know your numbers go back to basics A uh, good business is a good business right so jared you know when we were having our prep conversation you made a statement that you know that really provoked the, the you know the the team's thoughts, where you said that you pose a question to an entrepreneur. Are you running a company or are you running a business? So I would like you to expound on that and just you know make make that differentiation there.
0: Um you know, it's it's a it's a funny choice of words, but it is I mean, especially, you know, this is about become this is become investable, right? Yep. Um, investable means that you can package something, carry it to someone. they either believe enough in you, the entrepreneur, or the product that you've packaged and brought to them to invest in it right mm-hmm. and it means moving your um psyche away from a uh, that um kind of mom and pop shop or um you know kind of hustle, which um I think a lot of times um tends to be almost um, glorified or romanticized right um, but that is important because the entrepreneurial hustle is extremely important when you start right you need to break rules you need to take risks and you need to um you know you almost need need to break you need to you need to break some stuff to really to have that first level of success right um but then after a while, you need to formalize and you need to know when to stop, um, you know, almost acting haphazardly and start to formalize. Because if you want to attract, um, not necessarily an intelligent investor, but an informed investor, then you're going to, you're going to have to have your ducks in a row. Um, so for me, you know, personally, there are times in my life where I may have run very good, you know, business. And for some people, that means you're making money, right? But if you take it to somebody and you say, hey, I would, I would like you to invest in this, they would start to ask certain questions. Well, um, you know, what is your management team like? You doing this on your own? Yes. Um, okay. What about, um, you know, registrations? Is this a registered business name or, you know, does it have a bank account? You know, where does the cash go? You know, um, can you show me accounts for the last three years? Have you been paying taxes? You know, these kind of things. And um, this is where, you know, running a company or, you know, what what they tend to call corporate governance comes in, you know. So you start out things like, okay, I'm going to have management structure, you know, um, have a registered name. If I have a very strong brand, it might be copyrighted to protect it and all these different things that, you know, an investor may inquire about or um, may want you to do once they've made that investment. But they have to have the confidence that you can do it and um i guess one of the best examples i could use is um from a podcast that i listened to by reed hoffman of um linkedin on a, a you know a, a billionaire um paul and it's 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 about scaling businesses right mm-hmm. um and his name is reed hoffman and he had dara from uber on right and Dara was saying that when you start, you know, when Uber started, it was like it was like a pirate ship. You know, you have a bunch of unruly people who raid and plunder. Um, you know, if they're sailing on the sea and they happen to see another ship, they go after it. Um, there's no structure. They take these spoils. They fight amongst each other and that kind of thing, right? Sometimes businesses start like that. But then eventually, you know, if you might want to have a fleet or or, you know, you might want to, you know, scale it up you're going to have to operate more like a Navy, right? And navies, people are in uniform. There is discipline. You know, they use radar to find find ships and they have targets, they have Mm -hmm. strategies and so on, right? So, you know, to me, that's the difference there. You know, when is it time to stop um, being a pirate, acting like, like, like pirates and then start to act like a more formalized Navy, right? And, I mean, if you look at, you know, I don't know what type of investment a pirate ship might need. They might need to buy more ships and stuff. But if you look at investing in pirate ship versus a Navy, you know, you might, you might feel more confident going after, you know, after the move. Yeah.
1: And
2: that goes a bit, back to the investment question, right? Risk and return. Right. understand when you're investing in the pirate ship, you're taking a lot more risk. Right. So and you, you, could return,
0: you, and could. you could get a
2: lot more return. And you can get a lot more return, but it could be a zero-sum game. It could be either make money or I don't.
0: Right, right, right. And, yeah. and
2: you know, different people invest differently.
0: True, that is true. Yeah, yeah. Because you so can find
2: have to understand, you know, who you're looking for that investment from as well.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. That is that is fundamental. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that another thing that you know people have to get. Somewhat accustomed to one is um, something that I try to live by where, um, you know, when you're investing, is really for a reasonable return. Try to look for a reasonable return. Um, that fast dollar um, comes with a lot of risk. And as Maria said, it could be a zero-sum game, particularly in business. You know, um, try to look for a reasonable return over, over the medium to long term. Versus, you know, the the quick cash. Because the quick cash might only get you so far.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's the same thing with the stock markets. You know, unless you're an excellent day trader, you know, um, you know, playing the stock market is not for everyone at all. You know, you're better off taking, you know, putting some of your money in some stock that you think over time could give you a fair
3: reasonable return. Okay. Before I get to my final question. Uh I see there's a clarification question here um back on the telecom infrastructure points. In what okay, so Maria's Maria is gonna send, yeah,
2: send I Rica, because, Marie. I'll just tell you what that was. So we did a, a um with our um office from Singapore, we did an assessment of Trinlad and its ability to to service fintechs. So one of the things that we had to look at is all the Various parts of infrastructure, things like mobile penetration, um, internet, all that kind of stuff. So um, I'll be happy to send you something on that because I don't, I don't know if everybody's interested in that, um, and it's a bit technical on the fintech side.
3: Okay, yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. All right, so so my final my final question before we dive into QA. and uh, A, this is for you, Maria. So. You know, we speak about the need to be able to run the, the numbers for the entrepreneur to be able to run the numbers to determine if the numbers are better or worse for them, right? But let's say the entrepreneur themselves or himself or herself is not necessarily you know, you know, lots of people have that aversion to numbers, right? Numbers scare them, you know, so they always you may need to have that business partner or that that also CFO or somebody to to run the numbers. Like how do we how do we break down that mental barrier? to say, okay, well, let me understand my numbers and be able to present it to an advisor, a bank, right. an investor, or whatever.
2: So let me make a little separation here. So they are inventors and they are entrepreneurs, right? And all inventors are not entrepreneurs. In fact, a lot of people say the entrepreneurs take the inventors' stuff and make them commercial, right? So if you are calling yourself an entrepreneur, It means you do have to understand how to make money from the idea. An inventor takes a problem, finds a solution and invents a solution. They don't know, they don't always take that solution and make it commercially viable, right? That's where entrepreneurs come in. So if you are an inventor and you think that your, your advantage or your competitive advantage is in inventing things, then partner yourself with a business person who can help you with those numbers. But you need to understand the basics, right? You need to understand, okay, if I'm going to make this product, what is going to be the cost? And is it going to be at a cost that it's going to be commercially viable, that people could afford it? So, you know, people get confused about numbers. But if you have your own bank account, every time you go to a store, all numbers are is I buy something. I'm going to transform it into something else. And I need to know all the inputs involved in that, including my time, my electricity, my overheads. And when I come up with that cost, then I have to look at the market. Is the market willing to pay the price so that after I've spent all of this, and as Jared said, and I want to make a reasonable return, you have to ask yourself, what is a reasonable return? How much are you making from a deposit in the bank right now? Zero.
1: 0.4 so,
2: or something like that. 5% is great. 10% even better. Again, it goes back to the risk of making it. So I always tell people, you know, oh, I don't understand numbers. You do understand numbers because for you to just live life normally, you have to understand numbers, right? But you don't need to make it complex. You just have to understand, okay, if I'm making a loaf of bread and a a five-pound bag is X amount, divide that by the amount I use. I use salt. I use baking powder. I should know how much it costs to make a bake. And, okay, that takes an hour of my time to make one bake. How much is one hour of my time worth? Now, remember, the difference is generally between a business and a company. It is okay for you to run a business just big enough for you to earn and live off of, you know? Yes. Because it'll be like if you're earning a salary, but instead of a salary, you're doing it for yourself. Yes. And you then determine how much money is enough for you to make and how little you want to make to have work-life balance. So, you know, I keep telling people, you know, being an entrepreneur does not mean that you have to have 50 employees. If it means you could do what you love, not work for someone else and live comfortably you have accomplished exactly what you want out of life.
1: So the way
2: for you to really understand that is for you to get very familiar with what is it costing me to do this? And then you make a decision. Does it make sense for me to work for myself or for me to work for someone else? And the big difference there is your risk tolerance. Right? Because when you're working for yourself, it is more risk. When you're not performing, you have no money to get. There's no sick day that you're going to get paid for. So in, in, you know, really and truly this whole entrepreneur business, getting comfortable with the numbers. If you are an inventor, invent and get someone who can help you with the numbers. Right? Because there is a need for the inventors and there's a need for the entrepreneurs. Likewise, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to work for yourself, you want to then turn that entrepreneurial skill into a company where you are employing, you need to really understand two things. How much does it cost me to do this? And is the market willing to pay that price? That's just the two things you need to know. Is the market willing to pay this price? Is it going to be marketable at this price? And if not, what do I need to change in the cost of those inputs? That will then make it either volume-wise... Or price-wise, more profitable.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah. Jared, do you want to add to that before we dive into Q and A?
0: Yes. Um, I just want to touch on something really important that um that Maria said there in relation to scale. Um, and it relates to also understanding your numbers, understand what, understand how much money you're making when you are small. Right when when you're small before you scale, understand what your expenses really are because you know you might think you're making money, but you're not really paying yourself a salary. A salary, yep. Right, which is really important. You might think you're making money because you're home and you're using electricity at home. You're not paying rent. There is not overhead. Um, you know you have a brother or sister who's helping you do something for free or at some price that is below market, below minimum wage even etc right so before you scale really have a grasp of those numbers because there's a false sense of security when you're small about how much money you're making versus you know if you go to somebody somebody with an idea you get capital you now have rent to pay you now have employees to pay and you know you're operating at a totally different cost base now than before um the other thing too i think is really important and it's something that i battle with sometimes is um how much money can you make out there you know i was in the energy industry for nine years so how much money can you make out there and get a company car and all these things versus you know really going after your own business right um and you know put your business through that that stress test run some numbers or get somebody to help you run numbers and say if i want to make the same thing that i might make in the markets right what is that gonna look like? Like, what what size business and scale do I need to have to be able to do that? Of course, money isn't everything, so it's also balanced with you know your time is your own, but also understand that your time is not necessarily your own as an entrepreneur, because you might just find yourself um, you know constantly working, and these are these are things that you know you have to think about even more now within the COVID landscape because. I can tell you, I'm sure that there are some entrepreneurs who, you know, might be thinking that, you know, going back into corporate or looking for corporate, if they if it is available, might seem, you know, a, a bit safer now. So that that's also part of the question of is my business is is my business recession proof? Am I am I, you know, to some extent recession proof within the business and within what I think I might be able to
3: make in any market? All right. Lovely, all right, so let's get into the q and a so Shan asked a question a while ago, and Shan is an entrepreneur in the environmental waste sector right and she says that this pandemic has done great things, but we do have a fair on the doubling of efforts to make up for lost time when businesses are fully back up, so one of her services is to help businesses become waste efficient, so she wants to know if there's room to encourage businesses to switch to or add eco-friendly business operations during this time?
2: I definitely think so. Um, I do think there's another part of COVID that maybe we're focusing only on on the business side, but people are thinking about the environment more, right? So there's this whole thinking through that the universe is punishing us for taking advantage of resources. So I actually do think that consumers are more looking at companies who are purpose-driven, meaning they care about the environment, etc. I mean, I was even thinking about it. Now, since I've been home, I've been recycling my tube, separating my plastics, have the two separate bins, dropping it off. But I was thinking how great it would be if somebody had a truck that passed twice a month and pick up all the plastics. One, it makes it easier for people. Two, I'll pay $200 for that or $300. Um, Because if I want to spend my money, remember what really drives spending or supply is demand. So for your business, if you just hone in on, here's a time where people should be focusing more on waste, on being eco-friendly, on having efficient processes as well, which might be cheaper for you. You should really be pushing that agenda to get people behind it so that consumers demand that people are running their businesses more eco-friendly. That's the way I would look at it, yeah. because there are many people that are looking at nature now and you know how different it is under COVID-19.
0: Yeah. To add to that, um, what, what we've been seeing, and I think it's because mm-hmm. of the size of our market, in the adoption of eco-friendly um, goods and services, we do not have that type of scale or competitiveness or enough people aren't doing it. So um, it is, uh, you know, there's no price competition and it is actually driving up the cost of business. So I can tell you that, um, and it's a choice that we made because of because of what we fundamentally believe and because of the brand, Right. We chose to go eco-friendly with our packaging, Right, mm-hmm. um, with the majority of our packaging. We're not 100% there as yet. But what I could tell you is that a simple thing like a box went from 40-something cents to $1.50 right. without price increase to the customer. Right, And I believe that is because we don't have enough um, competition in the local landscape for eco-packaging. There are a number of players, right? Um, it has, you know, it has gotten a bit more price competitive now, but you know, we don't have that scale. So what I would, what I would suggest is one of the most important things that you can do from a business perspective is to try to drive down the cost of your eco friendly packaging and services to the, entrep- to the entrepreneur, to the businesses, because that will help them to adopt it more right and that will also help them to not pass it on to the consumer which is what we're trying to do now you know we didn't find it right to say okay we're doing eco packaging friendly now uh, gonna we're, we're, yeah we're going to just pass on a dollar and 10 cents directly plus that directly onto the onto the consumer um and you know consumers they would they would sometimes you know god bless them they would ask for things and then you do it, it's at a higher cost. And some of it has to pass on to them. They wanted it, but they didn't want to pay more. Mm-hmm. And then you know, on the back end you're seeing that, you know, your margins and stuff um, are are under pressure. So I think what the what the um what the environmental environmentalists and the companies offering these services need to do is that they really need to try to drive down the cost of doing it so that there can be much broader adoption of it. The
2: volumes have to go up, right? So I could tell right. you, the office, we made a decision. We are not going to buy from anyone that's not using the eco packaging.
1: Right, right.
2: To that. So right. To that. Even as much as we love the product and we love the food, we said, you know what? We're making a statement. Unless you do eco, we're not buying from
3: you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And yeah. That, that's okay. kind of like what you have to push.
3: Okay, so we already hit that hour and a half mark. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a Drina's question. But um, first, we want to give Shan an opportunity to, um, to, to speak to the piece. I think she wants to say something. So I'm going to unmute you, Shan.
4: Hi, Kevin. You all hearing me? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
3: Lord and Claire.
4: Hi, Maria. Hi, Jared and everybody else who is on the call. So um, I just wanted to add just a little bit because I, I know other people have questions. Um, one... I am not one of those people that does eco friendly packaging um but I do hear you because, and as Maria also said, the volumes definitely need to increase. One of the barriers for them was that the cost of importation was quite high, and they had to pay very high taxes and duties, yes. so the government has taken the decision to remove those taxes and duties so now they're they're paying it they're buying it at cost price. however, there has not quite been the um that lowering of price just yet um so for me um they are my company style environmental and my focus is predominantly on waste Um, so i teach a number of waste courses as well but a number another thing that the reason why i asked the question is we do we just before all of this hit we're going into organic waste management so justin mentioned composting I teach composting and I also wanted to be able to take organic waste from companies and turn it into compost, right? Which can then be resold or reused um, as the case may be. If the company works with farmers, you could donate it to the farmers and so on. But just speaking from... for um because i'm in a group with other eco entrepreneurs right um and you know there is this has there is a hesitation because we feel like oh gosh everybody had a makeup for lost time so everybody gonna double up on everything they were doing before um so i really i'm glad that you both said that yes there is still a space but the push has to come from the consumer just like ey took its stance we are not buying anything in styrofoam or plastic the consumer which is who i reach as well has to um yes justin i'm also looking at gated communities i wrote that down right so um to push the consumer to to encourage businesses to make the switch because consumers are changing and the gen z are looking for sustainable businesses to purchase from we've already seen that so thank you guys again yeah
0: and businesses can drive consumer behavior too um you know, you can bet that some of the bigger brands, if they adopt it and start start to push it, then it is Everybody. going to cause a domino effect.
1: You know, mm-hmm.
0: but of course, um, some of them are just, um, and you know, this is not to knock anyone, but they're just driven by 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 the profit factor, and sometimes for them, you know, it's it's just not there.
2: Yeah. But, I mean, the world is changing you now. You are going to get, I think, a much more conscious consumer. Um, and being ready for that, I think, will give people some competitive advantage. Okay. Probably so just, because our numbers are so small. So, if it's 10% yeah. of the population, it, yeah. you know, it yeah. can't really drive enough yeah. change. Yeah.
3: yeah. All right. So, we just want to get, get to our final question before we wrap Um, So this question comes from Adrena, and I love this question. What is your view on diaspora investments and best practices on common platforms for those transactions? So I think I want to send that to Maria first. Yeah, so um, maybe Maria could explain what that
2: means. (laughs) So I see what you're looking at is is, um, going outside to other Caribbean people for investment, right?
3: Yeah, so uh, so Adrina yeah,
2: and one common platform. So I, I have actually we have actually been toying with this um, through my my plant and seeds week, um, in terms of almost kind of doing a kind of digital funding where people could pitch online and then you can get investors outside of of the Caribbean who you know want to make some kind of investment there. And pitch to invest. So it's it's definitely an avenue because there are a lot of people outside of the Caribbean who still very much are attached and want to see the Caribbean grow. Um, but it goes back to some points that, that Kevin and Jared made through. It's not just being able, you know, I, I like what you all call yourselves, right? Being investable. Being investable is real important. We could have the platform, we could have the investors, but if the investees are not ready, it's going to fail, right? So, you know, making yourself investable, because remember this too, that diaspora is going to be a lot more sophisticated, some of them, because of what they're exposed to than our own people. So they're not just investing in the entrepreneur, the person, but they want to see that you have numbers. I mean, there's a big trust factor when I give you the money and I expect to get a return from it. Um, so, yes, a platform, the diaspora, is definitely an avenue for entrepreneurs to get investments from. But you have to show them, as I tell everybody on, on you know, when I work with these small entrepreneurs, when you're bringing an investor in, you have to make yourself Scalable, you've heard us use that word. What it means is, this is no longer about making profits alone for you, but you're now making profits for somebody else who have invested in your business and put in hard cash, you also have to give them a return. And, you know, I do that in a very simple way. I say, okay, if somebody put in 100,000 and they are looking for a 10% return, you just work that all the way up to how much your revenue has to be, right? So that means I'm looking for, say, $10,000. Again, that means your profit has to be 100000 If your profit is 100000 and your net profit margin is about 10%, it means you have to be making a million dollars in revenue. Very simple to work the numbers. So when you are inviting your someone in, understand to become investable, you have to be able to show that story, that you can do exactly that. I don't know, Jared, you want to, to, to add to that at all?
0: Yeah. Um, that is, that is very, that is very true. And, uh, one of the, I think one of the issues though, and it's something that, you know, I would like to get a lot more involved in is, um, platforms like these and discussions like these help people a lot. Um, of course, you know, there are business services out there and, um, are consultants and so on but just a general discussion a framework uh it's almost like creating an atmosphere of investability then where you know um yeah. almost like you know at the primary school level to some extent you know I, I found it took too long for me to understand that you know you buy something you add value to it and then you sell it over that concept For for me personally came too late in life you know so how do we create a framework how do we have more discussions like this how do we build up our entrepreneurs to the place where you know people look to the caribbean they look to um you know these emerging markets and say you know what they're stepping up their game they're getting better at presenting themselves and their businesses and so on and formal education may not may not be the place for it because you see it in small ecosystems like families, or, you know, we could even say, I mean, this is going to, you know, this might cause some confusion, but you see it in certain races. You see it in certain, um, you know, certain people of certain background and so on where it is just a way of life. Yes. And to some mm-hmm. extent, you know, we can all do more, I think, within, with, you know, within the Caribbean to really build that. And, you know, uh, Maria talk about investors, sorry, inventors. We have some really great inventors and creativity and creative people in the Caribbean who are creating all different types of um, products and services, and it's all about you know how do we how do we build build up ourselves in such a way that we can present that to people who want to make a dollar and ten cents off of a dollar.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, think of it where in any anywhere way you really could just come to one little country, eat about five different types of food. Experience about five different types of cultures, and we have been able to almost eradicate COVID. I think that sounds like a great tourism spiel right there for Trinidad and Tobago. Right. Yeah. yeah.
3: yeah. Doing, doing, pretty well. doing pretty well. Yeah. All right. So thanks a lot, Jared and Maria. This was beautiful. So if I was to summarize you know, what we discussed today, so in terms of dealing with the recession, um, the first thing you need to do is start with the framework, right? So start with our mindset and, re- and realize that it's a self-fulfilling prof- prophecy. And if you, if you were to approach it from that, if you were to play more offense rather than play defense, you actually see some yeah. positive yeah. results for our economies. And so when we look in what, into our businesses, the first thing you want to do is start to restructure. So you want to look at our expenses. You want to cut the fat and everything. You, and, uh, as Jared said, you want to look at our relationships with our stakeholders, our investors, creditors, our employees, you know, whatnot. You want to, you want to, you want to smooth that out and you want to make sure that you manage those relationships during this hard time so that they know that you, that you are solid for the good times. All right. And that, and that dovetail into digital transformation. So while everybody is going digital, you want to make sure that your back end, that your back office, your supply chain management, your inventory management, and everything is sound. Because otherwise, going digital will just expose the problems in your business model whatsoever. And we, we wrapped with the overarching point that it's back to basics. It's all about the fundamentals. Know your business, know your numbers. And that separates you from an inventor or an entrepreneur, or as Jared said, from a business. a company you know so with that we thank everybody for joining us today a replay of this session will be available on becomeinvestable.com next week and until then you know just be safe (laughs) wash your hands (laughs) and be positive yes and think positive remember it's a self-fulfilling prophecy what you what you think it happens
1: let's each do our part
3: Yes,
0: yes. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah thanks, right, for, thanks for having us.
1: Thanks for having us. Excellent thanks session as usual.
0: Yes, yes. Same here, Maria. Okay, Take care. Bye, All right. Bye, everybody.
1: Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Johnny.